0: Hello and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee and in this episode we go back to 1903 to see if Collingwood can make their third Grand Final in a row and become back-to-back premiers. Or will Essendon recover from its loss in 1902 and the controversy over its champion Albert Thurgood? And can Carlton continue to progress under coach Jack Worrell? 1903 saw the birth of some institutions that would become features of the 20th century. In America the Ford Motor Company was founded. As well as bringing cars to the masses around the world, Ford would also become known as a long-term sponsor of Geelong. In December 1903, the Wright brothers achieved the first heavier-than-air-powered flight. I'm not sure which VFL team was the first to travel in an airplane, but our national competition would not exist if teams had to travel by train and boats, like the players in 1903. Closer to home, the VFL was considering playing games in Sydney, to promote Australian rules football. Initial discussions began in January. Given the Wright brothers were yet to take to the skies, this would mean a full day of train travel for the competing teams. In Sydney, the famous Australian cricketer Victor Trumper was involved in the re-establishment of Australian rules and at a meeting in February, it was announced that the SCG would make its ground available free of charge for a game to be played in May. With talk of six clubs playing in Sydney using VFL rules this was something to be encouraged the league delegates meeting on the 20th of february was chaired by henry harrison an early giant of the game who established the original rules with his cousin tom wills and after much service in many roles across the vfa and the vfl was present as melbourne's delegate he believed that the vfl should help foster the game in new south wales as much as possible if the game was established in new south wales Then he was sure New Zealand would be next. It was resolved that the league secretary should enter discussion with the clubs to see who would be prepared to travel and play in Sydney. At their own expense, of course. A week later, the league met again with Mr Harrison in the chair. Mr Harry Hedger had travelled down from Sydney to attend this meeting and present the case for Australian rules football in Sydney and to ask for the VFL's assistance in supporting the game, especially to get some VFL games played in Sydney. Fitzroy agreed to go to Sydney at their expense and eventually Collingwood also agreed. Some reports say that it took until half past two in the morning to get their agreement. It was also agreed that the two clubs would even forego gate receipts from the match and the funds raised would be used to support the establishment of the game in Sydney. In order to compensate the two clubs for the cost and the loss of the home game revenue for one team, it was agreed that gate receipts for games in Melbourne on that round would be pooled and divided equally between the clubs. An early example of revenue equalisation, albeit as a special case. As, with all attempts to expand the game to the Sydney market, there were still some challenges to overcome. On the 9th of March at the Collingwood AGM, members voiced their dissatisfaction about not being consulted on such a significant issue. Taking one of the most popular games of the season, against bitter suburban rivals Fitzroy, away from the members, up to Sydney, was not popular. The objection to playing a game for premiership points was passed by a show of hands and the game was heading for exhibition status only. There was also a vote directing the committee to suggest that the VFL adopt a relegation system where the lowest ranked VFL team would be replaced by the highest ranked VFA team. This was partly driven by the repeatedly unsuccessful St Kilda who rarely won a game but still received an equal share of the financial dividends from the league. As noted in the article reporting the meeting, The VFL had already rejected such a scheme. At the league delegates' meeting on the 13th of March, letters were received from the New South Wales Football League lamenting the loss of the match for premiership points, highlighting that this would strike a severe blow to the project. Mr Copeland, Collingwood's delegate, explained that the vote had been taken late in the evening, when people wanted to get away, and once the importance of the occasion was considered, there was a good chance of reversing the members' objection even though they would be disappointed at losing the opportunity of seeing their team play. After much discussion, including Essendon's delegate, Councillor Demon, deploring the selfishness of Collingwood members, an easy call to make when it's not your club that's travelling interstate, the matter was agreed to be held over for a week so Collingwood could reconsider the matter. Perhaps this is an early example of the league management telling the supporters what would be good for them. By March 23rd, Collingwood's committee had sent out a sternly worded circular to members in favour of the interstate game. Fortunately for the league's plans, there was now strong support for the scheme. The game was scheduled for May 23rd. Lots were drawn for the return match to see who would get the home game between the two clubs. Collingwood with the lucky team. The fixture for the season also included two interstate games against South Australia in June and August, with the VFL also playing a Ballarat Association team, on the same weekends as the South Australian games. Previewing the season in the leader newspaper, the experienced football journalist, using the alias Follower, cautioned that the popularity and related prosperity of the game risked a return of payments to players, which was against the league rules at the time. Follower felt that the premiership should go to the club with the team's strongest in ability and skill, not the strongest in finance. He worried that a splendid pastime might be degraded to the level of a nefarious business. It would take the introduction of the draft and salary cap many decades later to address these problems predicted by Follower. As well as previews of the local games, several papers included discussion of the opening round in Sydney with the confidence that Australian rules was on its way to establishing itself in New South Wales where rugby union currently prevailed. The opening round saw Essendon lose at home to Fitzroy, South Melbourne defeated Melbourne at the Lake Oval, One upset was Carlton defeating Collingwood as a marker of the improvement under Jack Worrell. But St Kilda lost their home game to Geelong, giving them the unfortunate record of 100 VFL games for just two wins and 98 losses. However, St Kilda was going to surprise many as the season progressed. Round two saw two unusual events. The Geelong-Carlton game had to be postponed because of a train strike that prevented Carlton travelling to Geelong. Road travel was not practical in this era and there was not sufficient time to organise a boat. And St Kilda managed not to lose against Essendon. They did not win, but managing a draw was better than a loss. In round three, the rail strike was still on, so Melbourne caught a steamship to Geelong. Round four saw the big game in Sydney. It was a 24-hour train journey to Sydney for the teams. Amongst other dignitaries, the Governor-General and his wife, the Lord and Lady Tennyson, also attended the game. Additional entertainment for the spectators was provided by professional and amateur cycling races before the game and at half-time. Between the two clubs and VFL officials, about 120 people travelled to Sydney for the promotion of Australian football. 20,000 people attended the game. The fact that it was for premiership points created interest from rugby followers as well as the emerging Australian rules supporters. There was wide coverage in all the Sydney newspapers with much positive commentary about the Melbourne game or Australian rules, as it was called. However, there were several remarks that the people generally prefer the game that they are used to, and the opportunity for international games was something rugby could deliver, while this was lacking to followers of the Australian game. As for the game itself, Fitzroy played better in the second half to win easily, despite some inaccuracy, kicking 7 goals 20 to 6 goals 9. After being entertained with visits to the beach and a brewery, Collingwood left before Fitzroy, The Maroons played a game on the following Wednesday against a New South Wales representative team. Fitzroy won comfortably, as expected. One of the outcomes of the visit was an agreement that the postponed Carlton-Geelong game would be played in Sydney on the weekend of the interstate game against South Australia. The season progressed, with some unexpected results. In Round 7, St Kilda won their first away game, beating South Melbourne to end a streak of 53 consecutive away losses, a record they still hold. Other innovations included trialling of boundary umpires in some games. This saved the central umpire from also having to toss the ball in. Boundary umpires would become permanent in 1904. June 1903 saw one VFL club having to cancel games, change travel plans and ensure their players were vaccinated because of a deadly virus epidemic. South Melbourne had travelled to Tasmania to play some exhibition matches while the league had a bye for the interstate games against South Australia. Sadly, the excursion to Tasmania became a dangerous journey due to an outbreak of smallpox. Games scheduled for Hobart were abandoned, the club changed their travel plans and the players were vaccinated. This clearly had an impact on the players as was noted in the season review which said the team would have been in a much better position only for the unfortunate outbreak of smallpox in Tasmania during the tour which upset all the matches arranged in the south of the island and so affected the health of our players that its effects were manifest in the rest of the season. Two interstate games were played against South Australia in 1903. There was a bye on the Saturday the 27th of June, and at the MCG, a strong VFL team, wearing the blue and gold, were too strong for the visiting South Australians, scoring 13 goals 14 to South Australia's 4 goals 11. This ended a streak of three losses for the Victorians. A return game in Adelaide was held on the 1st of August during another bye round, with one week remaining in the home and away season before the sectional games began. It was to be another win for the Victorians, 9 goals 6, to South Australia's 5 goals 12. On the same day as the match in Adelaide, Carlton was due to play Geelong in Sydney. But unlike the fine weather in Adelaide, Sydney had a downpour. The game was postponed until the Monday. The crowd was estimated at 5,000, with the State Governor attending. It was described as a keen game, with Geelong getting home by 10 points, scoring 8 goals 7 to Carlton 6-9 the game was described in the Sydney press as a good one and more attractive than the earlier Fitzroy-Collingwood match. The Governor was so impressed he wanted to foster the game so New South Wales could defeat Victorians. Carlton stayed in Sydney to play a combined New South Wales team on the Wednesday while Geelong interrupted their return home to play Rutherglen. While there was some recognition of the merits of the Australian game, more than one newspaper article identified that rugby was very well established in Sydney and rugby offered the potential of international games that Australian rules could not hope to match. At the end of the home and away round, Collingwood were the latter leaders, with 12 wins and two losses, closely followed by neighbouring rivals Fitzroy with 11 wins. The improving Carlton and Geelong made up the top four. The three sectional rounds went as expected, leaving the top four in the same position. St Kilda provided a surprise for the season, dragging themselves away from the wooden spoon with seven wins and a draw. They almost had an eighth win, only losing by three points to Carlton, who made it to the semi-finals in their best VFL season. The top four teams would play in the two semi-finals. The first semi-final was on the 5th of September, which saw 2nd place Troy versus 4th place Geelong at the MCG, while 1st place Collingwood played 3rd place Carlton in the 2nd semi-final at the Brunswick Street Oval. Collingwood supporters were advised by the Herald on Friday night that their old player, under the new name Wilson, would be taking his familiar place at full-back. The player was former captain Bill Proudfoot, who, as a serving policeman, had been forbidden to play since earlier in the season by the Commissioner of Police. Apparently, the Commissioner was unhappy about the game often descending into violence. Proudfoot's return as Wilson was an open secret, and other papers simply listed him as Proudfoot. Perhaps the Police Commissioner didn't really read the newspapers. Fitzroy had travelled to Geelong in the last of the sectional games and kicked two goals in the last quarter to win by one goal. This semi-final saw Geelong travelling by train up to the MCG, where a large crowd of 15,000 people saw Fitzroy dominate from the start of the game. At half-time, Fitzroy led by five goals nine to Geelong's two points. Geelong did do better in the second half, scoring four goals, but Fitzroy was still far too strong, cruising to an easy win. 11 goals, 15 behinds, 81 points to Geelong's four goals five it would be a quiet train ride back to Geelong. Across at the Brunswick Street Oval, the game between Collingwood and Carlton was a much tighter affair. The wind favoured the railway end of the ground, but neither side could score freely. Carlton had one goal to none in the first quarter, but did not score at all in the second quarter, where Collingwood used the wind to score two goals. In the third quarter, Collingwood did not score, and Carlton kicked two goals. At three-quarter time, Collingwood trailed two goals two to Carlton's three goals three the question to be decided in one quarter would the improving Carlton make the leap into the grand final with their new coach Worrell, or would Collingwood dominate as they had for the vast majority of the season? And although they may not have realised at the time if Collingwood lost, Fitzroy would, after the semi-finals, have the same number of wins and a better percentage than Collingwood, thus removing the right of challenge. This last quarter was a must win for the Magpies. Early in the final quarter, George Lockwood gold for Collingwood. In his entire 29 game career for Collingwood, he only scored two goals, but this one goal in this game was worth plenty. Then, shortly after, John Insull kicked a goal for Collingwood, getting them in front by five points. Although they had the wind against them, Carlton were not done. They had three shots at goal, but were not able to convert. Then, just on time, Joe Sullivan, described as a sometimes erratic shot for goal, had a chance to win the game for the Blues. But it was a tough angle and a bad kick, and the ball flew wide. Moments later, the bell rang, leaving Collingwood the victors by four points. They were in the grand final against their neighbouring rivals, Fitzroy. The bitter competitors had met twice in the season, once in Sydney and once in Victoria Park, for one win each. After their close win against Carlton, Collingwood had an easy week at training, with general practice on Tuesday, and then rest and conservation of energy. Fitzroy had momentum building and trained during the week on the usual days, but a little lighter than usual in the lead-up to the big game. The VFL advertised the grand final match in Friday Night's Herald, the gates to open at 1.30 and the game to start at 3. People were asked to come early to avoid the crush and reminded there would be no change at the turnstiles. Sixpence to enter the ground and a shilling extra for the stand. In today's money, allowing for inflation, the prices would be about $4.11, and dollars. This was the seventh year of the VFL Finals, and the entry prices had not changed. One of the big differences to the modern game. Dick Gibson was the umpire for the game, which meant that this was the first VFL Grand Final that was not umpired by Ivo Krap. Dick Gibson had played for North Melbourne and South Melbourne in the VFA, and also played in South Melbourne's first season in the VFL. He had spent time umpiring in Tasmania before returning to the VFL as an umpire. Fitzroy's captain was Gerald Bronson. Reported to be the most accurate left footer to play the game and the best centre half forward of his era. Brosnan also captained Victoria in interstate matches before his retirement in 1909. After his playing career, he had coaching stints at university and then Melbourne. Lardy Tollock captained Collingwood again, following up his successful Premiership year in 1902. After he retired, he would, like Dick Gibson, become an umpire and umpire at the 1907 Grand Final becoming the first person to captain a premiership team and umpire a grand final. While the Argus had Fitzroy as a more fancied team, Collingwood was slightly favoured by Follower in the Leader newspaper. Writing in the Australasian, Markwell continued to campaign against the final system, being a firm believer that the team that topped the ladder at the end of the season deserved to be premiers. He deplored the fact that the additional money raised by the final system was more important than awarding the premiership in the fairest manner. Despite his repeated campaigning, the final series and the grand final decider was now established, with huge crowds attending each year. Grand final day in the modern era, with live TV and radio broadcasts, means the entire footy world focuses on just one game. However, in these early years, if you were not at the grand final, you had to amuse yourself in other ways until you could read the newspaper or get an update from a mate. On grand final day in 1903, there was also a fancy-dress football match between Brunswick and Coburg. Before the game, there was a parade from the Moreland Tram Terminus, headed by the Moreland State School Band, and junior players marched to the Coburg Oval in a variety of costumes that would set the Twitter Sphere alight if used today. The game was abruptly terminated in the third quarter by the bursting of the ball. Saturday, September 12th, was considered by some to be too hot for football, but that did not stop a crowd of 32,000 attending the game. The Governor-General was at the MCG, welcomed by the committee members for the MCC and the VFL. The players even lined up and gave three cheers for the Governor-General. The opening minutes of the game were full of errors as players had trouble keeping their feet and were falling over each other. But after ten minutes, the nerves must have settled and the standard of play lifted. Collingwood scored first with a behind to Ted Rowell. Shortly afterwards, Fitzroy's Percy Trotter got a free kick for a push in the back and his kick into the forward line was marked by Herbert Boxer-Milne. The place kick sailed through the goals to the roars of the Fitzroy supporters. Collingwood's controversial Dick Condon got a free kick after being flung by his opponent and converted for Collingwood's first goal. Even though many observers thought the free should have gone the other way, the Argus thought it was an unfortunate affair. At one point, Fitzroy managed to move the ball so quickly up the ground that Frank Brophy had no one to give the ball to. Their next push forward was more successful and the former captain and rover Bill McSpearan Gold for the Roy boys. Collingwood lifted their game, and some neat passing between Angus, Panham, onto Ted Lockwood allowed him to score the Magpie's second goal from a tight angle. Shortly after, Ted Rowell scored another behind. Fitzroy then attacked, moving the ball into their forward line, but the bell rang to end the quarter before they could get a reward. The game was living up to expectations, with Fitzroy on two goals, two, trotting by one point against Collingwood's two goals, three. The Argus noted there was, at times, a nasty spirit in the game, with players striking each other, and more than one player was cautioned by the umpire, although the age thought the game was played in a thoroughly sportsmanlike manner on both sides. The second quarter saw Collingwood playing with coolness and deliberation, while Fitzroy were rushed in their efforts. But the game was still close. One goal was scored by Jim Addison for Collingwood. Fitzroy had their chances, but Trotter and Brosnan both missed the mark, and the Maroons only scored three behinds. When the half-time bell rang, Collingwood had stretched their lead to 5 points, 3 goals 4 to 2-5. The wind dropped at halftime, so there was no real advantage for either side. Fitzroy started to make the play in the third quarter and had 3 or 4 shots that would have put them ahead, if they'd been accurate. Collingwood scored 2 behinds for the term, and Fitzroy had 3, which left them 4 points down with 1 quarter to go. The hot weather and the intensity of the game were taking their toll, and the fourth quarter would severely strain players on both sides. Early in the last quarter, Fitzroy's Bill McSperian had a chance to goal, but felt he was too far out. He tried a pass, but it was intercepted by Collingwood's Jack Monahan, who launched a counter-attack. After a sequence of passes in the typical Collingwood system, Ted Lockwood had a shot, but only scored a point. Shortly after, Jim Addison took a mark from the forward line and kicked his second goal for the game to give the Magpies an 11-point lead. In a 10-game career, he would score four goals, but two of the most important were in this grand final. Collingwood supporters thought they might have the game. Fitzroy supporters were willing their team on for one more effort, despite the heat and tension. Then Fitzroy's full forward, Les Millis, snapped up the ball and kicked their third goal, leaving them just five points down. The roar from the supporters inspired the players to push forward again. Bill McSperien had another chance, but spoiled it. Millers had a shot from a tight angle that went close, but not close enough. Collingwood had led for almost all day, but were being pressured like never before. With only moments left in the game, Gerald Rosen, the Fitzroy captain, took a strong mark in the forward line. Said by some to be the straightest left foot in the game, he had a shot at goal. Standing within range, and not on any angle, this would put Fitzroy in front. They were just three points behind Collingwood after training for most of the day. The season had come down to this kick. The Age said that as the ball flew towards the post, it looked like it was going through, but its course was altered by a very light breeze and it shaved the outside of the post. A behind that was all that was registered. And then the bell went and Collingwood were premiers again, winning the game by two points. Four goals, 7-31 to Fitzroy's three goals, 11-29. For years afterwards, Collingwood's full-back Bill Proudfoot would say that it was the laces on the football that scraped the goalpost. Every child's dream of scoring the winning goal in the grand final with the last kick of the day had gone horribly wrong for the Fitzroy skipper. The Collingwood supporters cheered. The Fitzroy fans they knew that their team had tried, but inaccuracy had let them down long before Brozen's final shot on goal. As Follower said in his review of the game, the leader, that was not bad luck, but bad kicking the players were exhausted. James Sharp, Fitzroy's back pocket, collapsed from exhaustion while leaving the ground, suffering sunstroke and heat apoplexy. And some reports say that he did not regain consciousness till 9.30 that night. While the players may have been happy to celebrate the win, or console themselves after such a near miss, the two teams were actually to play each other again within a few days. Bendigo had made arrangements for a midweek game to follow the grand final, and Collingwood and Fitzroy had agreed even though many players had already taken two weeks away from their jobs to play in Sydney earlier in the year. While not all players made it to the Upper Reserve in Bendigo, the game went ahead with the funds going to the local hospital. On the Wednesday morning, the players were taken to Eagle Hawk and back on an electric tram car, followed by a lunch hosted by the Mayor at the Beehive Café. The game was held that afternoon in front of an immense crowd. Fitzroy even had a local lad, Barclay Bales, play for them. He would later join Fitzroy in nineteen oh five and play for four seasons. The result was even closer than the grand final. Cullingwood four goals five twenty nine, to Fitzroy three goals eleven twenty-nine. Clearly Fitzroy needed to do some more work on their accuracy in front of goals. At the League General meeting following the end of the season, there was a usual distribution of funds for the clubs and to charities. Mr Brownlow, the delegate from Geelong, who was celebrated with the medal that bears his name, Raised the issue of umpiring standards. It was asking too much for a man to run the whole game, which was admittedly much faster than it used to be. Not the last time this argument would be raised. There was discussion of, of appointing a referee with a faster runner to do the hard work. I'm not sure how that would work. Or adding boundary umpires. The matter was referred to a committee for further review prior to next season. Join me next time as we explore season 1904 and see if there are rule changes. And will Collingwood be able to complete a hat-trick of premierships? If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcast from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks and I hope you join me next time.